From the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, this is Democracy Now! In the last one year, particularly due to Russian war in Ukraine, we have seen so much of backsliding of climate action and so much focus on energy security, which has driven fossil fuel investments, particularly in Africa. And they are going to make things worse for Africans. And Europe is treating Africa as its gas station. That's absolutely unacceptable. A major split has occurred here at the UN Climate Summit between wealthy nations and the global south on whether large polluting nations, including the United States, should be held financially responsible for causing the climate crisis. We'll look at the debate over loss and damage and the state of the talk so far. Then climate collateral, how military spending accelerates climate breakdown. The richest and most polluting countries today spend 30 times as much on military as they do on climate finance for the world's most climate-affected people. Rather than providing aid, these same rich countries are interested providing weapons and arms to countries like Egypt. Plus, we look at the movement to stop a major oil pipeline in East Africa stretching from Uganda to Tanzania. My name is Omar El Mawi, and today I'll be speaking about the East African Kudol Pipeline, the world's longest heated pipeline in East Africa. It's going to be impacting people, nature, and the climate. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. NATO representatives held an emergency meeting in Brussels today after two people were killed in a missile strike in Poland near the border with Ukraine. Earlier today, the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, said the weapon was likely fired by the Ukrainian military as part of its air defense, not by the Russians. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had initially blamed Russia for the missile strike. This is the Polish president, Duda. Nothing, absolutely nothing, indicates that this was an intentional attack on Poland. So what happened is a rocket hit our territory. It was not intentional. It was not a missile targeted at Poland. The fact is, this was not an attack on Poland. On Tuesday, Russian forces pounded Ukrainian cities and energy facilities, causing widespread blackouts in what Kyiv reported was the largest missile attack since the start of the nine-month-old invasion. Earlier in the day, President Volodymyr Zelensky asked G20 members to support his peace plan to bring the war to an end. The White House said CIA Director William Burns met with the Russian head of foreign intelligence earlier this week and warned against using nuclear weapons in the highest level in-person meetings yet between the U.S. and Russia. Burns then traveled to Kyiv to reaffirm U.S. support for Ukraine. Meanwhile, President Biden asked Congress Tuesday to approve an additional $37.7 billion for Ukraine, including for the purchase of weapons. A Georgia judge overturned the state's six-week abortion ban Tuesday in a major victory for reproductive justice. The law had previously been blocked in 2019, but went into effect in July after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. 
Fulton County Judge Robert McBurney found the ban violated the U.S. Constitution and Supreme Court precedent when it was originally enacted in 2019. Donald Trump announced he will run for president in 2024. He spoke from his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. The announcement followed a lackluster performance by Republicans in the midterms, including by many high-profile candidates Trump endorsed. It also comes as the former president is embroiled in multiple investigations. The House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is considering issuing a contempt of Congress referral after Trump skipped his deposition Monday. Meanwhile, in New York City, former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg testified Tuesday against his former boss, Donald Trump. Weisselberg said he didn't pay taxes on $1.76 million of personal expenses and received many perks, including access to a luxury apartment. Trump's businesses are accused of over a dozen counts of fraud and tax evasion by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. In Washington, D.C., House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy won the Republican nomination for speaker with 188 votes. He'll need, though, to secure a majority, at least 218 votes in January, to become the actual House speaker. Republicans lack just one seat to take control of the House, with GOP candidates leading in four of the nine races yet to be called. In other midterm news, Senator Raphael Warnock has sued his home state, Georgia, for forbidding early voting on Saturdays before his December 6 runoff with Republican challenger Herschel Walker. In immigration news, a federal judge on Tuesday blocked the Biden administration from continuing to enforce the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy to expel migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border without due process. Over two million migrants have been expelled to Mexico since Title 42 was first enacted in March 2020. Biden officials repeatedly extended the policy, even as migrants and advocates denounced deadly conditions and human rights violations in Mexico. Tuesday's ruling stemmed from a lawsuit filed by the ACLU. In more immigration news, immigrant rights activists in Philadelphia are prepared to welcome a group of asylum seekers arriving today on the latest bus sent by Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott to sanctuary cities. Texas has spent some $20 million to bus over 13,200 asylum seekers to Democratic-led cities like Chicago and New York, with Abbott raising $400,000 in private donations to pay for his anti-immigrant effort. A new classified report by U.S. intelligence officials finds the United Arab Emirates sought to influence U.S. foreign policy through a variety of legal and illegal means. The revelations detailed in The Washington Post are unusual since investigations of this kind do not typically focus on allied nations. According to the report, the UAE spent more than $154 million on lobbyists since 2016, as well as hundreds of millions of dollars on donations to U.S. universities and think tanks that produce policy papers favorable to the Emirates. In one of the more damning exposés, the UAE hired three former U.S. intelligence and military officials to spy on political dissidents, journalists and companies and hack into computers. 
The Brazilian president-elect, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, addressed COP27 today, declaring Brazil is back on the world stage. Lula called for the next COP to be held in the Amazon, which, under the rule of far-right President Jair Bolsonaro, suffered major deforestation and deregulation of extractive industries as indigenous and environmental leaders were systematically killed and attacked. Meanwhile, as high-level climate talks continue here at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, young activists are demanding decisive action from governments. This is 11-year-old Indian climate activist Lisapriya Kangujang, uh, who has been demanding the U.S. and other wealthy nations compensate poorer countries that bear the brunt of the climate crisis. On Monday, she confronted British Environment Minister Zach Goldsmith over the U.K. government's arresting climate activists from Just Stop Oil and other groups as they carry out daily acts of civil disobedience. Listen carefully. When are you going to release the climate activists? The 11-year-old climate activist, Lisapriya Kangujam, asks the UK environment minister, who then walks away to avoid her questions. She later explained why she confronted Goldsmith. Climate activists should not be like um, arrested, should not get arrested for peaceful protest. But, and also, um, he can't do anything. But I want to ask him that, why is he a minister if he can't do anything? Why he is in COP27? After our headlines, we'll spend the rest of the show here on the UN Climate Summit. Back in the U.S., Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, Jennifer Siebel Newsom took the stand Monday, Tuesday, in Harvey Weinstein's rape trial. Siebel Newsom, who's a documentary filmmaker and the wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom, says Weinstein raped her in a hotel room in 2005, where he had lured her under the guise of a business meeting. She's the fourth survivor to testify at Weinstein's Los Angeles trial. He's already convicted of rape and criminal sexual assault in New York in 2020, though he's appealing that case. Construction workers at a Tesla auto gigafactory in Austin, Texas, filed a complaint with the Department of Labor Tuesday over unsafe working conditions and wage theft. One whistleblower said their employer provided fake credentials in lieu of giving workers essential training about the job. Others say they were not compensated at all or did not receive earned overtime. A worker simply identified as Victor told The Guardian he and his colleagues were ordered to keep working in a flooded area that was covered in live wiring, prompting Victor to tell his wife, I'm going to die in this factory. Other locations of Elon Musk's Tesla factories have been repeatedly cited for worker rights violations and hazardous conditions. The U.S. Labor Department has accused a major cleaning company of using child labor on graveyard shifts at slaughterhouses. The federal agency says Packers Sanitation Services, Inc., employed at least 31 children, the youngest just 13 years old, at three JBS meat plants in Nebraska and Minnesota, and that the company likely employs far more children across its 400 other locations. And Walmart has agreed to a $3.1 billion settlement with state and local governments nationwide over its role in the devastating opioid epidemic. 
The deal will need to be approved by 43 states before it can be finalized as part of the agreement. Walmart will have to submit to oversight measures, work to prevent fraudulent prescriptions and flag suspicious ones. Earlier this month, CVS and Walgreens proposed similar settlements for roughly $5 billion each. Over half a million deaths in the U.S. over the past two decades have been linked to opioids, both prescription and illicit. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We are broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. A major split remains between wealthy nations and the global south on what financial responsibility larger polluters should take for causing the climate crisis. A group of more than 130 developing nations and China have proposed establishing a loss and damage fund to provide money to countries impacted by the climate crisis. But the United States has said it would not support a, quote, legal structure that is tied to compensation or liability. To talk more about this, we're joined by Harjeet Singh, head of global political strategy with Climate Action Network and with the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels and support a just transition. We're going to talk to him in a moment. But first, I had a chance to walk through part of the U.N. Climate Summit with Harjeet earlier today to get his observations on what's happening. Harjeet, if you can take us into the pavilion where used to be so many climate justice groups had set up uh, booths. So you see this as an expo for the very fossil fuel philosophy and companies that climate justice groups are taking on. Absolutely. So, you know, we have been coming to this space to fight for climate justice. It's such an important conference. It's not a travel junket for us. It's a space where we, where we demand that we need to be reducing our consumption. We need to make sure uh, that private companies uh, do their part. But what we find that it has been turned into an expo and there are more than 600 fossil fuel lobbyists who are selling their products, which is fossil fuel, which is going to exacerbate the problem. So they've turned these conferences into a place where the problem is going to get more worse because of the increasing fossil fuel investments. That was Harjeet Singh, head of global political strategy at Climate Action Network, or CAN. He joins us now live on our set inside COP27. Harjeet, welcome back to Democracy Now! We're right outside the plenary. Um, Before we talk more about that corporate capture that many are concerned about at the Climate Summit, give us the latest on these negotiations that are taking place. It is Wednesday. The talks supposedly end Friday. They often go an extra day. What's happening here? Thank you so much, Amy, for having me. Always a pleasure to join you here. At this moment, there is a logjam on the issue of loss and damage finance, something that developing countries have been demanding because impacts are everywhere, and it's poor and vulnerable people around the world who are seeing their homes getting washed away, uh, their crops are getting destroyed, but they are not getting any support from the UN climate system. And there is no mention of fossil fuels in the draft cover text which is going to come out of this COP, which is deeply worrying because after 30 years of fighting, we got fossil fuels mentioned for the first time in Glasgow uh, at COP26. And now there's a fight to have them back again. And in fact, 
many developing countries and some developed countries are also demanding mention of all fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas, because we can't just mention coal, which was the case in uh, COP26 Glasgow, and we have to talk about phasing out in a manner that is just and fair, and finance needs to be provided. But things are stuck, and we have seen climate finance issue not making progress at all. I think many people around the world listening to you right now would be very shocked that in the draft of the final statement of the UN Climate Summit, there is no mention of fossil fuels? Absolutely. So when I talk about 600 lobbyists moving around and the interest of fossil fuel industry and governments are causing up with them, that's the result. So imagine the global energy continues to depend on fossil fuels to the tune of 80%. Now, that's not by accident because we did not do enough to move away from fossil fuels and invest in renewable energy because Paris Agreement did not even mention coal, oil and gas. And that's exactly the reason we are demanding a global framework to fix that big hole in, in climate policy. And that's why the demand for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Because you can't just talk about fossil fuels on the corridors. If you keep that issue on the sidelines, it's going to fall off the table. I want to talk with you about the fossil fuel uh, treaty. Uh, but I want to first turn to the U.S. presidential climate envoy, John Kerry. In September, he spoke at a New York Times event where he was questioned by a member of the audience who happened to be Farhana Yamin, a leading environmental lawyer who helped negotiate the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement. What will you be doing to step up and actually put money into loss and damage? And what will you be doing to stop the inaction on procedural and legal and institutional wrangling, which the U.S. is at the heart of, I have to say, you can remove all of that and establish the facility on loss and damage at COP27, which is the, the will oh, of the money. vast majority of developing countries. Okay. And all I can say is you're bringing a lot to the table, and we really applaud that. But the most important thing that the U.S. can bring right now is honesty to COP27. Well, in all honesty, the most important thing that we can do is stop, mitigate enough that we prevent loss and damage. And the next most important thing we can do is help people adapt to the damage that's already there. And we have a limited, we, you know, we're not, you tell me the government in the world that has trillions of dollars, because that's what it costs. So we're now trying to mobilize the trillions of dollars, and I'm not going to take a feeling guilty. So that's the U.S. climate envoy, uh, John Kerry, uh, being questioned by Farmina uh, Yamin. Uh, your response, Harji, to what he was saying then, because actually his position has changed. Absolutely, because the kind of pressure we have been mounting on the U.S., being the biggest historical emitter and also the biggest blocker on the issue of loss and damage finance. And the reason we are facing loss and damage right now is because of the inaction of the last 30 years led by the United States. And U.S. has blocked every discussion on loss and damage finance, which means helping people recover from climate impacts. And when Secretary Kerry says that, you know, we cannot achieve it in six weeks and we don't have trillions, but we do see trillions going to military. We do see trillions going to bailout banks. And we also see trillions being made available to fight the COVID crisis or even now uh, for the Russian war in Ukraine. 
So money is available, but U.S. has always blocked money going to poor people who are suffering from climate impact. Explain why. Explain the difference between loss and damage and uh, John Kerry's concern that that would lead to liability and compensation. Absolutely. So for U.S., it's an issue of compensation and liability. And, and at a principal level, it is. But we come to this UN space to have a more cooperative mechanism in, and have a principle of solidarity uh, in, in this space. But the US has always acted in bad faith. We got a mechanism in 2013 called Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage, which does mention loss and damage finance, but they did not allow that discussion to move forward. They fear that any progress on loss and damage means more litigation cases. I would argue that if you don't operate in the co-op as a you know, operate as you know cooperate more in the space, you will see more litigation cases going up. It's like a seesaw. So if you provide support in through this system, litigation cases are going to go down. In any case, they have multiplied because they, we have not seen sufficient action. Uh, from the U.S. and the developed countries. So you've made the argument that actually if the U.S. got involved with loss and damage, they would be less liable. Talk about the lawsuits that are being brought around the world, sometimes one farmer against a whole corporation. There are hundreds of lawsuits we are seeing. You know, we have seen how Shell Company was taken to court in the Netherlands. We have seen even the German government was taken to court by young activists. We are seeing a German company being sued by a Peruvian farmer. These cases are multiplying all over the world because nothing has progressed in the climate space that is responding to the scale of the crisis. So we need U.S. to be on the table, respond to the proposal that developing countries have put forth so that we can actually have a more cooperative mechanism to help people who are facing climate emergency. Hmm. Um, you represent the um, Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, Tuvalu has become the first country to use the UN Climate Summit to demand an international treaty like this, which would gradually eliminate the use of coal, oil and gas. Explain what this is all about and how countries are responding uh, from the global south and the biggest polluters like the United States and China. So the biggest challenge is that we have not mentioned fossil fuels in the Paris Agreement. No reference to coal, oil and gas, the major cause of the climate crisis that we are facing right now. It's because of the influence of the industry. And there's also a reality that many developing countries you know, are dependent on fossil fuels for their revenues. There are millions of workers involved. So we need a global plan to phase out fossil fuels in a just and equitable manner. And this system here is not talking about fossil fuels the way it should be. So we need a global framework in the form of a treaty that complements the Paris Agreement and helps people and economies move away from fossil fuels, which, which are causing you know, multiple crises, climate crisis, health crisis, and even the global energy crisis, which is not an energy crisis, it's a fossil fuel crisis. So earlier today, Harjeet, uh, you took me on a tour of the pavilions. Now, these are places where often you have climate justice groups um, uh, using stalls as spaces to have conversations about how we move forward with sustainability. 
Um, you have Greta Thunberg deciding that she was not going to come to this climate summit because of greenwashing. Explain what this, uh, what this pavilion or pavilions all over have become. It's really painful to see this climate conference turning into an expo. That's not the purpose of this conference. We come here to fight for climate justice. You know, there are thousands of activists who somehow raise resources to influence negotiations, to hold polluters to account. And you see polluters setting up their shops to sell more fossil fuel products. You see NGOs are being squeezed into small, tiny boxes where they can talk about the, the amazing work that they are doing on ground. And you see massive, these pavilions from governments and private companies who can afford. So we're pay. talking about, for example, the large pavilion of OPEC. Exactly. So civil society does not have those kind of resources to, to represent their work and to, to make their demands heard. And this is where the UN Secretary General must step in and... and and decide how this place is going to be run. Is it going to become an expo and the next COP is going to happen in Dubai, which is, a, which is an expo city? Hmm. So you have Sharm el-Sheikh as well. And because of the thousands of lobbyists, the corporate representatives, the um, governments from the UAE to the United States to um, uh, Saudi Arabia, I mean, the prices for climate activists even to be here. I mean, do you think these cops have become obsolete or destructive, or do you think there's still a value in people gathering from around the world, no matter how much the fuel costs and the are to get here. This UN space is the only space where we see all countries are theoretically equal. Tuvalu is as powerful as the US. Malawi is as powerful as the European Union. We cannot depend on G7s and G20s, which are a club of big economies. This is the place where we fight for global justice. But this place is being turned into a commercial space and not a space where civil society organizations and developing countries can equally demand you know, human rights and justice. And we need to reboot the system to make sure that the UN is made fit for purpose to respond to multiple challenges that we are facing right now. Climate crisis is, is one of the biggest crisis that we are facing at this moment. Before, when I said Tuvalu is the only country, at least it's Tuvalu and uh, becoming the second nation, Vanuatu, calling for this, um, non this fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Um, Talk about what's happening to these island nations. I mean, you have the latest news out of Tuvalu that they are making a digital kind of rendition of their islands, um, uh, a digital version of itself replicating islands and landmarks, preserving its history and culture as rising sea levels threaten to submerge the entire Pacific nation. They knew it. 
Pacific nations raised this concern 30 years ago that we need a global response to the crisis that we are going to face in future, particularly sea level rise. But nobody listened to them. And when we talk about the issue of loss and damage, it is exactly that. It's about helping them deal with those climate impacts. When they call for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is because of the desperation and the inaction that they have seen in the last 30 years. They are doing anything and everything possible to demand justice and climate action, and they are not getting adequate support. Harjit Singh, I want to thank you for being with us, head of the Global Political Strategy with Climate Action Network. And with the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels and support a just transition. Usually, he's in New Delhi, India, but today in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, where the UN Climate Summit is taking place. Next up, Climate Collateral, how military spending accelerates climate breakdown. Stay with us. by the Egyptian-Libyan musician Hamid al-Shari. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. We turn now to look at the link between military spending and the climate crisis. A new report by the Transnational Institute examines how military spending and arms sales not only increase greenhouse gas emissions, but also divert financial resources and attention away from tackling the climate emergency. In a moment, we'll be joined by two co-authors of the report. But first, this is a short video produced by the Transnational Institute. My name is Muhammad. I'm a human rights lawyer, researcher, and migration activist. I have been born and raised in Egypt until I left the country in 2017 because of the risks and the threats that I faced personally because of my activism and work. When I left Egypt and became an exile, I felt like a tree that you took out of the soil. Egypt is in the international spotlight today for hosting the world's most important climate talks. But the fact that its host is the military dictator, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, it says a lot about the world's most powerful nation's real priorities. Sisi's regime survives 
thanks to a huge flow of oil, arms, and EU money. The richest and most polluting countries today spend 30 times as much on military as they do on climate finance for the world's most climate-affected people. Rather than providing aid, these same rich countries are interested providing weapons and arms to countries like Egypt. And every dollar of military spending is also worsening the climate crisis. A militarized nation like Egypt and an accelerated arms race globally is the opposite of climate justice. We cannot allow my experience and the experience of many other Egyptians to become the model for how we respond to an escalating climate crisis. Climate justice requires democracy, human rights, dignity, and demilitarization. It requires a world that puts people before profits and peace before war. That's a video produced by the Transnational Institute, which has just published the new report, Climate Collateral, How Military Spending Accelerates Climate Breakdown. We are joined now by two guests. Nick Buxton is a researcher at the Transnational Institute, joining us from Wales. And Mohamed Akashif is an attorney and migration activist living in Germany. Nick, let's begin with you. Um, why don't you lay out the findings of your report that looks into military spending, arms and weapons sales from the world's richest nations and the deep impacts that um, it has on countries' capacity to address the climate catastrophe that the world is facing right now? Yes, thanks, Amy. Thanks for the invitation to be on your show. Um, this report, as you know, is, is coming on the back of big discussions at this COP, which we just heard about in this earlier section, uh, about the need uh, that the poorest countries who are most impacted by climate change are saying that we need finance to both adapt to climate change and to deal with the loss and damage. And, and we hear uh, John Kerry, you were just quoting the earlier clip, saying, name me a nation that has trillions of dollars to deal with this except basically saying washing his hands of the situation and refusing uh, to accept some responsibility. And yet what this report shows is that there is trillions of dollars. Um, the richest countries, which are called Annex 2 countries under the UN climate talks, um, have dedicated $9.45 trillion to military spending in the last eight years, between 2013 and 2021. Uh, and that is 30 times more than they have dedicated to climate finance. And they're still not delivering on their promises to deliver the 100 billion a year uh, that was promised way back in 2009 now. Um, so, so what we're seeing firstly in this report is that there is resources, but it's been dedicated to military spending. Uh, the second main finding is that of this military spending, it is very much tied to a very high um, emitting uh, uh, situation that we're creating greenhouse gases with every dollar we spend on the military. And that's because the military depends uh, with its jets, its tanks, its ships on high levels of use of fossil fuels. Uh, so, for example, the F-35 jet, which is the main fighter jet that the U.S. is now deploying, uses 5,600 gallons of litres an hour 
um, in in its in in its deployment. So these and these and these uh, weapons which are bought then are, are usually in operation for 30 years. So it's locking in that carbon for a long time to come. So we're creating a situation where actually the military is contributing deeply to the crisis. Um, and then the third main finding of the report. Uh, was was looking at what the richest countries, the Annex Two countries, are doing in terms of arms sales. And we actually found out found that the richest countries are supplying arms to all 40 of the most climate vulnerable countries. So what we're seeing is we're not providing the finance that we need for the poorest countries, but we are providing arms. In a situation of climate instability, uh, and in terms of uh, a real poverty and people really facing uh, on the front lines of climate change, uh, we're actually adding fuel to the fire by providing the arms that could lead to conflict. And is, as as the video shared, is the complete opposite of climate justice. Can you talk about the armed forces and fuel consumption, Nick? Yeah, there's a, a report just came out actually just a couple of days ago, which has been estimating how much uh, the military uh, contribute towards emissions. Uh, so, and it calculates that uh, the world's military uh, contribute 5.5% of the total emissions, um, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, if it was considered a country, it would actually come fourth. So it's it's just bef- it's just after Russia in terms of how much. Uh, emissions that they produce. So it's it's a very substantial per contribution to the problem. Uh, the Pentagon in the US is the single largest institutional emitter of uh, carbon emissions. Um, and, uh, and the 5.5%, for example, is double what is produced by civil aviation. And what is what is really shocking is that within within the UN system, it is not properly counted. So it's one of the few uh, bodies and organi- organs that doesn't have to report all its emissions to the UNFCC and the IPCC. And that was because the US, uh, under the Bill Clinton administration, actually carved out an exemption for the Pentagon. Uh, So at the moment, that exemption, in 2015, it was watered down, so now they can report it, but it's not, it's still voluntary. And we still have a very incomplete picture of actually how many emissions are produced. Uh, So this is one of the key demands that's also been raised at the COP is that it, we, we're doing some estimates that it's a really significant player, um, but it's absolutely crucial that it becomes um, mandatory for the military to provide it and to show all their emissions, not just the emissions of their equipment, but also the supply chains of the arms sales and so on, because uh, we do know that these systems are very highly intensive uh, users of fossil fuels, and are also very much embedded in a system that has been protecting the fossil fuel economy globally for a long time. I want to bring Mohammed El Kashef into this conversation. Um, Mohammed, Egypt is the third largest importer of weapons in the world. Um, one of dozens of countries that has received more and more military aid, arms, and weapons from the United States, from the European Union, uh, as well as from other rich nations. How has this contributed not only to the worsening pollution and the impacts of the climate crisis in the country uh, and the world, but also to serious human rights violations committed in Egypt by the Egyptian military? Thank you. Um, Actually, Egypt 
uh, has spent nearly $50 billion on Prokashin's weapons since 2014, just soon after the military returned to the power uh, in 2013. And since 2017, it has been one of the top five arms importing countries. In the last three years, it's ranked as the third, highest third. And actually, uh, in, in two major deals, Egypt paid around 5.2 billion euros in 2015 and 4.2 billion euros in 2021. As we all see, and it's, it's not hidden, uh, the economical situation that Egypt is uh, facing and the suffer uh, that uh, Egyptian people uh, see and struggle with since 2016, but also when we talk about the human rights situation and we're talking about the situation inside the country itself, uh, this country kind of shaped and controlled by every level by the military, which not only uh, the, the every level of a state bureaucracy, but also controls large sector of the economy and, this, and the open spaces. Um, I'm sure now, like COP27 just shed in the light uh, on, the, on Egypt, and uh, luckily there is a civic space that the human rights defender, the people still living in Egypt, can speak loudly and transfer this, their voices to the outer world. Unfortunately, this arms deals and all this money involved give the Egypt and the Egyptian state kind of legitimacy and international support that give them the power to crack down on the civil society to keep over 60,000 referent to amnesty report in 2016, more than 60,000 political prisoners and detained. We see actually just one figure, Ala Abdel Fattah, just one figure, just one political prisoner who got a support and who is just lucky to have some people talking for him. And we see how the Egyptian state actually respond to such demands. So that's what we are seeing, actually. The world and the European member states, the USA and even the Russia, all of them just closing the eyes of the violations happen inside Egypt because of all these deals, because of the interest. So, Kashif, if you could, if you could talk more about where we are right now, um, where we are. You're in Germany. We're in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. Um, and about what this place sort of represents. For many, they don't even have a sense that they're in Egypt. It's such a different place, so isolated. Actually, Egypt is not isolated. Egypt is in the middle of everything, like in the middle of, of East. It's, I meant uh, Sharm el-Sheikh. 
Yeah, Sharm el Sheikh actually is a really nice touristic resort. This does not reflect the real situation in Egypt, in Delta, in Cairo, in Alexandria, and North Coast. Sharm el Sheikh is just a part of heaven if we want to discuss that. And actually, uh, it's crazy because it, there is no transparency, no democratic uh, accountable or process holding the Egyptian state the responsibility for what happened to invite all these people to Sharm el Sheikh and uh, let them enjoy their time in such a resort. I would say this is just not just a greenwashing, but also this is a big lie. You also are a major advocate for refugees. Can you talk about climate refugees, uh, the same rich nations that are creating conditions that cause people to flee, investing then billions of dollars in militarizing borders and preventing them from coming to the fossil fuel-emitting nations? Yeah, sure. Actually, when we see that, it's, it's a kind of a closed circle and we are going in dilemma. Uh, big states are expending more money and expending uh, too much billion dollars and euros in, in the arm. And then we see the military emission and how it uh, affects on the climate and find like displaced people and refugees are leaving their home and their countries to find a better place to live, to find uh, some place still <clears throat> uh, livable in, in a sense. And then instead actually of spending money and spending resources to correct the situation and to face the crisis, no, the states are spending more and more money in militarization, in the militarization, in militarizing the border, in the border security. And that's actually really sad because we see that uh, the crisis is kind of uh, affecting us all. And we need really to find a solution, to find a better solution. What we see in Africa now it's also going to Mediterranean because in the Mediterranean, big sector of fishermen, big sector of communities are losing their source of finalizing and affording living. And we are, what we are witnessing actually in Pakistan and the floods in Pakistan and what's happening, this, this is all actually kind of impact of our wrong policies. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. We're certainly going to link to your report. Mohammed Al-Khashef is an attorney and migration activist speaking to us from Germany. Nick Buxton, researcher at the Transnational Institute. They are co-authors of Climate Collateral, How Military Spending Accelerates Climate Breakdown. Um, also uh, co-author of The Secure and the Dispossessed, How the Military and Corporations are Shaping a Climate-Changed world. Next up, we look at the movement to stop a major oil pipeline in East Africa stretching from Uganda to Tanzania. It's called ECOP. Back in 30 seconds. Got it. 
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit, COP27, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. As we end today's show, looking at a movement to stop a major oil pipeline in East Africa uh, to connect Uganda's Lake Albert oil fields to the port of Tanga in Tanzania. Key financial backers of the 900-mile East African crude oil pipeline, known as ECOP, include the French company Total and the China National Offshore Oil Company. Environmental groups have fought the project for years, warning it'll have a devastating impact on the region and produce vast greenhouse gas emissions. One group recently described the project as a, quote, mid-sized carbon bomb. To talk about ECOP, we're joined by Omar Elmawi. He is campaign coordinator of the Stop East African Crude Oil Pipeline campaign, co-founder of Decolonize, based in Kenya. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to be with you here in Sharm el-Sheikh. Omar, talk about this oil pipeline for a global audience. Um, Place it for us and who's behind it. Thank you for inviting me. This is a pipeline that's being proposed in East Africa. Uh, which is going to be the longest heated pipeline to be able to uh, take the oil that was discovered in the uh, Lake Albert region in 2006 in Uganda uh, all the way to Tanzania so that it can be put into tankers and then taken into international markets uh, for being utilized uh, for other issues within these countries. Uh, So it's a project that is strongly being uh, opposed by people in Uganda and the whole world uh, because it's going to be displacing over 100,000 people in East Africa and it's also going to be causing a lot of impacts to nature. One of the biggest uh, biodiversity sectors called the Murchison Falls Park is going to be affected and then it's also a carbon, a carbon bomb, as you've already said, because it's going to be emitting over 34 million tons of CO2 every year for the next 20 years that it's going to be operational. So how is Total and this Chinese company um, having the authority to build this? Because the way they propose this project is that after Uganda discovering the oil, they realize that it's a costly process and they don't have the money to mine it by themselves. So they invited interested parties to come in and submit their interest to be able to exploit it. But then the unfortunate thing is that now Total took advantage of this process and they managed to come up on top and they managed to get to become the biggest shareholder of the project. They own over 62% of the pipeline and they own a whole operation, 100% operation of one of the biggest oil fields in the region. Um, and they've signed agreements that are giving tax benefits to the corporates where they're getting a tax holiday for up to 10 years. They won't be paying a penny for all the oil revenues that are selling out. And I know for people who are watching will be asking then why is the government signing on to these agreements? And to me, in my mind, I'm also asking the same questions because it's either the government is really ignorant about its interest and what they're doing with all of this process, or secondly, someone has been compromised and they're not making decisions on behalf or the interest of the public, but the interest of their own stomachs. So talk about how the uh, profits from this if there are profits are apportioned between the oil companies Total, China and the countries Uganda and Tanzania If there are any profits all of them are going to go to the corporates 
because the way you make money in the oil business is either you charge taxes uh, over the barrel, per barrel of oil that's being sold, and they're not doing that because they've already given a tax exception for 10 years. Uh, the second way is to have a huge shareholding capacity within the project. And as I've already told you, the governments of Uganda and Tanzania are minority shareholders of their own resource that they're considering is coming from their country. And therefore, what they're doing here is that the only thing that they will benefit are the impacts that are going to be faced for the people, the impacts on the environment, the impacts on health, and they're the ones who are going to be shouldering all of these issues because these are areas that they will have to be setting aside government and money from the government to be able to be dealing with these issues. Talk about the groups that are fighting it and how much effect do they have on the governments of Tanzania and Uganda? This is one of the classical campaigns to show where it started from a community grassroots campaign where communities living along the corridor all the way from Uganda, the western Uganda up to Tanga in Tanzania came together and decided to start a campaign to stop this project. And in doing so, they started inviting and bringing on board many other voices from the whole part of the continent at first, and now even people coming from all over the world having and showing solidarity. We have organizations and campaigns in France who are pushing and making sure that they're helping to put pressure on Total. We are having friends in the U.S. who are making sure that the different banks that might be interested on this project don't give out the money, and therefore it's now one of the classical good examples of coming together with, the, with global citizens where they've shown that the world is indeed a small village. So um, we just had on yesterday Vanessa Nakate, uh, Nakate, and she is from Uganda, and she also spoke about ECOP and her opposition. I'm wondering about this COP, COP27, called Africa's COP. Your thoughts on that? Um, and are these companies that you're talking about, not to mention the country, how they're represented here, like Total? I mean, so far, it's been a huge disappointment. This is not necessarily an African COP, but just a COP that's happening in Africa. Everything is the same as how it's been happening from before. Uh, the bigger global North nations are pushing their agenda. Our African leaders are here not understanding who or where their priorities should be because they seem to be advancing the priorities of fossil fuel companies by trying to push for things like gas and fossil fuels as a transition fuel for the continent when Actually, what they're doing is providing all of these resources for fossil fuel companies to keep exploiting and taking them to the global north. So in short, we are opening business uh, as a petrol station for the global north. So talk about how people, the wildlife, the animals, the flora, the fauna are affected. You said 100,000 people. Who moves them? And do these countries say they will be compensated? And does that matter if they're forcibly moved? So and the unfortunate thing is in Africa, and indeed in this case Uganda, when the government is convinced that a project is good for them and for the public, uh, all of us are considered as, as collateral damage. So 100,000 people will give way just to make sure that this pipeline takes effect. Uh, these are just the people who have to be removed from the process. I haven't even started speaking about people who are economically displaced because the pipeline is cutting across areas that is fertile land where people depend for agriculture. It's cutting across rivers and lakes, uh, which are important as not just freshwater 
resources for the people, but also for fishermen and other people. So all these are people who are going to be affected. There's definitely, the pipeline is passing across important wildlife uh, areas. Uh, some of the game reserves, including the Murchison Falls Park, which uh, actually is home to some of the most important wildlife uh, animals within the continent. And then finally, uh, it's also the aspect around how this project uh, is actually pushing across, you know, people who've been opposed to it and speaking against it have in one way or another felt government reprisals. There have been a lot of human rights violations in the process. People have been arrested. People have been detained. Uh, organizations have been threatened to have the organization deregistered. And therefore, for us, it doesn't necessarily look like development because you don't force development of people. If they don't agree to it, then you shouldn't be putting them in jail. We're talking to Omar El-Mawi. Um, he's a campaign coordinator of ECOP, uh, Stopping ECOP, Stop East African Crude Oil Pipeline Campaign, and also the co-founder of Decolonize. That's decolonize, but the call is spelled C-O-A-L. Um, talk about what that means, how you're fighting coal and fighting for renewables. Yeah, and, and it's sad that at this time in age, we're still talking about coal as an option for energy production for people. I mean, the evidence is there of how harmful it is, how it affects people and everything that it, it, it touches. Um, and therefore, the decolonized campaign and what we were trying to do is to show that this project is really wrong. We were able to work with the community across two regions in Kenya that were the call fronts to be able to speak up against this project and to significantly challenge it in courts. And it's one of the few good examples of success stories where the community were able to successfully uh, litigate and win a case against uh, coal interest. And we've been able to make sure that that project never takes effect. Um, and in terms of renewables, um, it's, it's, it's the whole reason why we're doing this work, because we're not just saying that we don't want energy, because we have more than 650 Africans who are energy poor in this continent that require accessible and affordable energy. But the, 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 the solution shouldn't be about exploiting these resources and taking them somewhere but find a solution that provides this energy to them. And the good thing is that renewable are easily decentralized and we can easily make sure that people get access to this energy and we're improving their lives and livelihoods. Amazing the amount of solar energy you have in Africa, to say the least, but how little uh, solar power is funded in Africa. And that's very true because Africa has the potential to provide over 40% of the wild capacity or potential for solar, but only 1% currently of the generation is from solar in Africa. What this tells you is that we have opportunities. We have an opportunity here to take uh, advantage of this resource and actually make money out of it because it's not charity. Uh, it's a business opportunity that businesses can do and make a lot of money off without necessarily impacting the people. Omar Al-Mawi, we want to thank you so much for being with us. He's campaign coordinator of the Stop East African Crude Oil Pipeline campaign, known as ECOP, and co-founder of Decolonize. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez will be giving a speech this Friday at Columbia School of Journalism, reflecting on his 40 years of fighting for racial and social justice in journalism. It begins at 4, 10 p.m. on Friday. Check out democracynow.org for details and his two other speeches that he's doing before he leaves New York at the end of the year. We are working with an amazing team. Special thanks to Nermeen Sheikh and Hani Masood and Sharif Abdel Kudus and Dennis Moynihan. I'm Amy Goodman.